Hello and welcome to Suvion, the Cambridge podcast from St John's College. I'm Heather Hancock, Master of St John's and host of the podcast that brings you stories from our community to intrigue, inform and inspire. Today we meet Natasha Walter, feminist theorist, human rights activist, charity founder and St John's alumna. She talks about starting her journalistic career at Vogue, being a critically acclaimed author and playwright, and why she supports Extinction Rebellion. Natasha, it's such a pleasure to welcome you back to to St John's and to see you here in the Master's Lodge, a place that neither of us probably thought we'd be spending much time sitting in when we were students here at college. Um, I'd really like to begin, as we kind of explore your story here and beyond, with um, a bit about your early life. Tell me about your family. Yeah, thanks so much. And can I just say, it is lovely to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me on this beautiful sunny day into the Master's Lodge. About my family, I was very lucky. I think I had a very happy childhood. And if I say to you that my father went to Oxford and my grandfather went to Cambridge, it sounds as though my sort of trajectory towards St John's College, Cambridge, was very natural. Of course, it didn't really feel like that to me growing up. My family was in some ways actually quite unconventional. My parents had met in political protest in the 1960s. My father described himself as an anarchist. My mother was a social worker. There was a certain sort of engagement with left-wing politics, alternative radical politics, that meant that I think I came at the experience of this very sort of elite and privileged education at a slight angle, maybe. But there was always in my family a huge value put on education. And I was lucky to go to an excellent private girls' school in London on an assisted place. And I think when I arrived at St John's College, I was lucky to have a kind of confidence that had come from that very privileged, really, upbringing. And that that radical household, and no doubt the people who were visiting, their sort of family friendships there were... Do you sort of think that was shaping your your values and your approach to life as a child, or was it just something that was happening? And it I think it was shaping my values, though I probably wasn't that aware of it at the time. And I think that in later life, oh, you know, so in my twenties and so on, I think in some ways I reacted against that—that that I didn't want to be immediately politically active, and I wasn't politically active at all while I was at university. So why St John's? Well, I remember visiting Cambridge on an open day. I think it was actually an open day for Kings and having a walk around the colleges and just being so struck by the beauty of this college. It was as simple as that. I just thought it was stunning. I was also at a school, a girls' school, where there were quite a lot of girls who were trying for Cambridge. And one of my close friends was trying for Kings and one for Trinity. And I thought, hmm. I think I'd like to go somewhere different. And I was quite, I think, attracted by the fact that St. John's was opening up Mm. to women and that we as women going into a college like that would maybe be breaking some new ground, if that makes sense. I think that really does make sense. I mean, the point you make about how beautiful it was, even our undergraduates today, when I ask why they've chosen St. John's, 
over half their first answer will be beauty. And it's such a brilliant reason to choose a place. This is a stunning and inspiring place to live and to study and most of us never get a second chance to live in buildings like this. So absolutely, I love and I think it has that. a huge effect on one. I, I think when I look back at my time at Cambridge, it was definitely a happy time, and part of that happiness, I mean, it came from the people, it came from the studies, but also just the the physical environment. In my third year, I was lucky to have a ground floor room in First Court, and I just remember, you know, that experience of being in the heart of that extraordinary court, the beautiful architecture, the sort of generosity of the space. Yeah. And, and I, I love what you say about that sense that, we, that, that, that kind of these first generation of women in the college were, were breaking new ground because the, the college was learning to accommodate us. But what I really felt, those early generations, we were just kind of saying, get out of the way, we're here, we're having it. What, you know, how are we going to make the most of it? Something I say to our students today who whose assumption is it must have been incredibly difficult and a nightmare. And I try to explain to them, of course, there were moments and there were people who are always going to be incredibly difficult and a bit of a nightmare and an acquired taste. But mostly we just felt pioneering in a really enabled way. There was nobody saying no. I completely agree with that. I didn't feel that I encountered sexism at the college. I felt that the you know, the teaching staff here and, and elsewhere that I encountered, who are obviously almost all men, um, were in fact hugely generous, inspiring teachers. And we met as as equals, as inquiring minds. And for me, coming from a girls' school, one thing that really struck me was I loved being in the mixed environment and being able to sort of spar with men intellectually. And I never felt put down, patronised, um, treated as less as a woman. And I think, you know, that was a really, really important experience for me. And it was also true when I went to the States, to university there, I felt, again, really supported, able to speak my mind. And then when I went out into the working world and found how different things were there, the sort of old hierarchies, the sexism, the objectification that one experiences as a woman working in the media, it... It was really, really different. And I was really glad to have, to have the confidence that I'd had from an education where I really hadn't been aware of that kind of sexism. Yeah, I, I, I so agree with you about that. When you were here, you read English. What, what made, was English just the obvious choice or were you... Funnily enough, I didn't enter St John's to do English. No, I came in to do classics. I had this absolute love of... Greek and Latin, because I went to the kind of school where it was still taught. It was still an option for O-level to do Greek as well as Latin. And I didn't even do English literature as A-level. I can't imagine that it would be possible to read English literature at Cambridge now without English A-level. I feel so lucky to have taken this slightly unconventional route. So I did Greek, Latin, history at A-level. I came in to do classics. I was starry-eyed about classical literature I quickly realised in my supervisions that I, I just felt I wasn't really up to it, to the incredible rigour, uh, linguistic rigour of doing classics at Cambridge. I mean, if there hadn't been a choice, I know that I would have gone on, would have pushed myself through it. But I just took, you know, looking back, I think, wow, sort of an act of overconfidence you know I just went to see my supervisor my tutor and said I think I'm doing the wrong subject and I want to change to English literature and I all I can remember is a few serious conversations about 
what I was reading, you know, what I wanted to study, what I knew about the course. And they let me change after one term. And then I had to come back in the long vacation to do the medieval paper with um, the Dr. Beadle um, as a catch-up. And thank you, St. John's College. It was the perfect change for me. I loved doing English. It was just a joy and a happiness for three years. I'm not saying, yeah, I don't want to be too rosy spectacles about my time at Cambridge. I felt the pressure that we all felt about wanting to do well, um, you know, sometimes the weight of work. But honestly, seriously, I just loved studying English. And I had some really inspiring teachers here. I was just remembering Kathleen Wheeler, one of the first female faculty here, I believe, was teaching um, the Romantic Poets and was truly inspiring, opened my eyes to how to do practical criticism. And John Kerrigan teaching Shakespeare. I I felt with John Kerrigan, the characters in, the, in Shakespeare were more alive to him than we, the students. But I didn't see that as a problem. You know, it was a, extraordinary the way he lived and breathed Shakespeare for us. And it, he was such an inspiring teacher. It's, and, and then, of course, it loops back to the history of the college. You're studying the romantic poets in a space where Wordsworth walked and, and learned and exactly. well, scarpered quite quickly as well, if we're honest. <laughs> but he, had, he had a bit more revolutionary zeal. What else did you get involved with when you were here? The other main thing that I did while I was here was journalism. And that was a huge thing for me. I mean, I did come from a background. My dad was working at the Times Literary Supplement for a long time and so on. But, so I did have a some experience but it was a brilliant time at the student newspapers at that time just a fantastic cohort actually mainly of men who went on into newspapers afterwards um people like James Wood, David Rowe and Jocelyn Target who went straight into the Guardian, the Sunday Times and so on afterwards but I really learned a lot about the craft working at what was stop press then now varsity you know it was the days when cut and paste literally meant you got out your scissors and glue (laughs) Rather than just pressing. But, you know, that was fantastic to learn the craft because then my first job in journalism, which was at Vogue magazine, that was what it was like still then at magazines. We were still literally cutting and pasting. Yeah, so it it was fantastic cohort here then of people who were interested in journalism. You finished here with a with a superb tripost result and you headed to the States. Yeah. Now, in those days, that still seems to me like it was a brave and bold move to kind of cross the ocean. What what prompted that step? I wouldn't say necessarily bold, but it was I was just so glad again of that opportunity. It was on this Frank Knox scholarship that was tied Cambridge and to Cambridge to Harvard. And it was a fantastic opportunity. Funnily enough, I do remember the Sufis who wrote my reference for it being rather down on the whole idea of studying literature at an American University and said, really, Natasha, you'll find it like going back to A-level. after." <laughs> he was wrong. It wasn't at all. It was a new way, a different way of studying. You know, in those days, and maybe it still is the case, the English tripos is quite rigid, really, about what you can study in terms of really a, quite a narrow definition of English literature. It was wonderful to go to an American university where everything was in the mix, and I was also able to mix and match course tripos subjects. So again, I feel that I was incredibly lucky with my education, just in terms of the kind of passions I was able to follow. Yeah. So Cambridge, Harvard, Harvard, tempted to stay in academia forever? Yes, at the time when I went off to Harvard, it, that was definitely what I was thinking. I'd, I wanted to stay, wanted to do a PhD, wanted to be a teacher of the kind that 
you know, inspired me. But I got sidetracked by journalism, as a lot of people in my generation did. It was the time of great expansion of print journalism. It was a very exciting time to be around journalism and publishing in London. And I quickly found, you know, a very sort of congenial atmosphere there for writing and editing worked at women's magazines and then moved to newspapers where I worked on the books pages of The Independent, which was a great place. People like Blake Morrison, Sebastian Fulkes, writers like Anthony Lane, Alison Pearson on the page. You know, really fantastic writers, a, a wonderful atmosphere of, well, how can I put it, people that took journalism really, really seriously. I wouldn't say they took themselves seriously, but the craft of it, you know, the what you were doing with words... Um, how you respected your reader and believed that your reader wanted the best. I'm saying that in quite a nostalgic way because I think, you know, things have changed a lot in journalism with the collapse of print journalism, but it was a great time. And at the same time, you're sort of really building quite a portfolio career because somehow you're finding time to start to produce your own writing on a, your first book. Yes, that's right. I then became a more political being. I suppose, as I said, I grew up in a very political household, but had rather set that to one side as I, you know, adored the ivory tower of academia or whatever. And then being plunged into journalism, I became much more political. And my first book, The New Feminism, which was published in 1998, I now see it's very much a product of that time in the 1990s. It was, you know, the new Labour landslide in 97, um, a lot of optimism, I would say, looking back, about how liberal values could triumph, in a way, you know, that we could build a much more equal society that worked for everyone. Was a sense of a new Jerusalem, wasn't yeah. it? It really was. It, was. it was within sight. It was. There was a lot of... There was a lot of good work being done, you know, in terms of what was being done for women's lives, you know, in terms of childcare, in terms of sort of transforming the discourse and the law around domestic and sexual violence and so on. Um, and in society more generally, you know, it was an optimistic time. And I think that book reflected that because it was a book that talked about what needed to be done, but in quite a sort of gung-ho way, we are going to make this change. This is going to happen. It's quite straightforward. Um, and I, then the second book about feminism I wrote, which was in 2010, Living Dolls, was a much more chastened look I'd say about how hard it is to make change and about how difficult things were in 2010 and still are I'd say for young women trying to reach for full equality. It's so saddening and it can be disheartening because if you you contrast the, the time for the new feminism and living dolls and and how in a way somehow we took the advances of feminism for granted and didn't understand you have to constantly shore those up whilst you're building on the foundations. But you can't assume those foundations are quite as stable as you, as you and firm as you think they are. And I, I find that today with our, our students have a really active feminist society in the college, 50-50 male and female, I, I would say, going to the meetings. And and I find they're talking about really important aspects of feminism, but sometimes I feel they're on the margins. And I want to talk to them about kind of the the threat to feminism that's coming from the threat to democratic norms and processes. And, and you know, they need to be actually right in the centre of this debate and discussion. The, the things at the margins matter, but we've got to keep reinforcing those foundations. And it seems to me that that was sort of that that short period of time between your two books somehow 
How, how did that sort of erode and evaporate? I think that's absolutely right. I feel very worried now when I think about where we're heading in terms of feminism and in other ways. I mean, you do see globally assaults on women's rights that were unexpected just a few years ago, whether you're looking at the States or whether you're looking at Afghanistan or Iran, you know, or the situation of women in conflict zones. It's really a worrying time. And I am concerned about this generation of young women. I mean, I have a daughter myself who's 21, and I wouldn't say that things are all bad. In many ways, it's a confident generation that is still building, I think, forward. But I think there's a lot of uncertainty. I see in many places a loss of self-confidence and uncertainty about what the future holds, not just for women, you know, also for men, but, you know, that has a particular effect maybe on how young women see themselves and their ability to affect change in the world, which I feel is very different from my generation. And I know that the way that I've mapped up my own experiences as a young woman, a lot of people listening will just think, well, lucky her, you know, super privileged. Absolutely, I'm the first to say that I was. But I think I wasn't entirely anomalous. I think my generation, there were quite a lot of young women that felt... I think we were expected, whatever backgrounds we came from, there was this sense in society, and and I'm sure in our schools and families mostly, go girl, this is what we want you to do, take this opportunity and make the most of it. Didn't seem to be those sort of closed doors or invisible barriers that, well, now they're not even so invisible, that Mm. seem to be being put in the way. Absolutely. We're going to get depressed if we're not careful. No, I think there are huge challenges for this generation, Um, not only in that, but obviously in other ways, whether you're looking at the climate emergency, lots of very divisive politics, threats from populism and the far right. But I do think as well, you know, there is a lot to hope for, a lot to play for. You know, and I see a lot of energy and a lot of ideas as well coming from this generation. And and I also think, you know, it has been too fashionable in the last sort of decade or so to bemoan this this generation. And and my children, a similar age, for a lack of resilience. But if you look at how they dealt with the horror of a pandemic situation, all those lockdowns, when you're in your late teens and your early 20s, don't think we can say they lack resilience Absolutely. and the way they both coped themselves, but they supported each other and they they still fashioned and shaped a life for themselves, which pushed away those kind of physical constraints. Thank goodness for the, the internet and, and digital communication to one extent. Yes, I see a very resilient generation, but that has huge challenges mm. to face. So, what kind of traction did you get with, with both of those books? How did that land you in terms of your, your public profile, which is really growing? I feel that particularly Living Dolls struck a chord with not just the women's movement, but more widely, which was great. So I found myself much more sort of part of a, a wider debate about, you know, women in society. And I so I went on doing journalism for quite a while, writing about the issues that really interested me. And then I took a a detour and set up um, an organisation working with refugee women, a charity called Women for Refugee Women. And I could, a lot of what I've done in my life, that wasn't planned. I didn't think, oh, now I want to sort of change my career and work in NGOs and charities. I started it very much just as a project, something that I was passionate about. So I was working as a journalist and I started by writing about the issue. And then I met women who'd sought asylum in the UK and I felt so 
I was so struck by the scale of the injustices that they were facing, not only in their home countries and the journeys, the dangerous journeys that had taken to be in the UK, but then when they got to the UK, what they were facing in this country in terms of not being able to find security here, find safety, find the freedom to rebuild their lives. And so I really wanted to kind of connect um, the women's movement with this issue and to try and bring it more into the mainstream and to ensure that refugee women's voices were heard. So it started as a small project. And then over the years, I was at the helm for 15 years. We grew into a sort of medium-sized charity supporting many women seeking asylum and campaigned on some issues that I felt very strongly about, particularly the detention of women seeking asylum, but also the poverty that they faced in the UK, the insecurity that they faced. And I feel, looking back, you know, really glad to have done work I was so passionate about. I only left the charity just over a year ago and glad that I was then able to hand it on to a woman, a professional, but also a woman with refugee background herself, Alphonsine Cabagabo, who is a survivor of the Rwandan genocide and then built a life, a career for herself in charities and has taken over running the charity. So it felt like as a natural progression. When I look at that step, because, you know, you say it so simply, well, I founded a charity, but founding a charity is hard yards and a, a lot to learn and a, a lot of stuff about sort of process and regulation and compliance and finding funds and all the rest of it. So I'm not putting that to one side. It's a lot. But it also looks to me that what I admire about the way you did it was you sort of almost perhaps subconsciously built a scaffold for how you were using your voice and your skills and then kind of applied, use that scaffold to, to make this cause so, so visible and successful, even down to writing a play to, to bring it to wider attention. Tell me a bit about that. Yes, as I say, when I first started Women for Refugee Women, it was very much as a project. We wanted to bring out refugee women's voices. And I started to connect with other women who felt strongly about it. And one of the women I was lucky to connect with at an early stage was the actor Juliette Stevenson, well known for being involved in these causes. And she and I visited a detention centre. This was back in 2008. And it was when children were still being detained. And we visited two families who had young daughters of 13 years old. And Juliet at that time, her daughter was 13 and she was very, very struck. And remember on the train back from the detention centre, we said, we can't bring everyone to meet Malta Anna, but let's bring them to meet people through a play. So we set to work and I sort of wrote the play based on um, these girls' own experiences. And Juliet brought her you know, a cast of, of mates, really, to, to perform it at the Young Vic. And it was wonderful way, I felt, to connect with all sorts of people and to bring the issue more into the mainstream. And then Women for Refugee Women worked in partnership with lots of other more established organisations, you know, like the Refugee Council and um, Helen Bamber Foundation and so on, to campaign for an end to the detention of children. And in 2010, the coalition government did end that policy. So it was great to see the way that campaigning can work and, you know, to build it very much from the voices of, of those who experience the injustice. As you say, you know, building a charity is 
it's hard work. I felt, you know, wasn't necessarily my original skill set. It was a lot, as you say, around compliance and process and data protection and safeguarding. It just has to be done. You have to just sort of get on with it, you know, go into work and get on with all that stuff and, you know, make sure your trustees are doing their work and, you know, the staff are being managed well and so on. And I loved the challenge of it, loved learning new things. And it was the first time you'd really had a a sort of sizable management role. I'm assuming in journalism, you'd not really had much of that. No, no. And also I'd never really been managed. I mean, I've had bosses, (laughs) but (laughs) I'd never know, you know, this whole idea of an appraisal, you know, it's all totally new. So I had to to learn on the job, as it were. And I had wonderful people on my board who mentored me through that. Women like Maggie Baxter, the ex-director of Womankind Worldwide, a wonderful mentor to me and, and many others. And shout out to my partner, Mark Latimer, who was at that time running a, an NGO called Minority Rights Group, now runs another NGO called Ceasefire that works on civilian rights in conflict. A great person, you know, when I came home, the problem would listen and say, now, that's a good problem to have, which is something online that I think should be rolled out more often. Yes. You know, when you're sort of saying, I don't know what, I do, what I'm going to do with this grant. or you know, I, I've got too many people coming to this. And, you know, he always would try and see the, the positives, yes. you know. Building a charity, it is hard work. It has to be taken seriously. It can't just be done on a wing and a prayer. You know, you're particularly working with such vulnerable people. Mm. You have to take those responsibilities seriously. I love doing it. Absolutely love the work. Also been very happy to step aside, as I say. I feel it's flourishing under new leadership. And I'm now relishing the opportunity to going back to my first love, really, which is which is writing as well as activism. So another project on the cards? Yes. Yeah, so I've just finished another book, which will be published next year. And that book is is a looking back. And it was interesting when you asked me that first question about my family and my childhood, I found it extraordinarily hard to answer it. And one of the reasons why I think I found it so hard to answer it is I've just written a book about my parents and about my family. And so I find it very hard to sort of summarise. But undoubtedly, my parents, who are both now dead, um, were a huge influence on me. And what I wanted to do in this book was travel backwards and think a little bit about their generation of the 1960s, but also my mother's father, who was involved in the anti-Nazi resistance of the 1930s and really put his life on the line in that resistance. And just to think a bit more about what it's like to be involved in that kind of political activism. I'm lucky. I've always grown up in a time of peace, in a democratic society. I've always been safe and able to raise my voice whenever I wanted to without fear of real reprisal. And it was important to me to sort of travel back a bit in the past and think about how precious are these rights and freedoms that we often take for granted and to think about the bravery of members of my family who... Um, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine at the earlier part of this year, you, you ask yourself, what would I do? You, you hope you would have the courage to do the right thing. But but one wonders. I mean, I don't know that I don't feel I would ever have had the courage that my grandfather had. He was active in the 1930s. As I say, an anti-Nazi resistance. He was in prison for three years, 33 to 36 in Germany. And then when he fled Germany in 36, went on working in that resistance in communist and pro-refugee causes in Holland and Prague before coming to London. And I feel 
there is a kind of courage there that, you know, is well beyond me. <laughs> I just really wanted to pay a kind of tribute to it and to think about, I think recently politics I have found very difficult to find hope in, mm. in many ways. And just the importance of kind of keeping hope, keeping good values alive in difficult times. Ever been tempted to take that political direction? Oh, no, no, not at all. I don't think I'd be suited to mainstream politics. I think I'm too much of a, I don't know, a, maybe maverick is the right word. I'm not sure. Also, I don't think I'm the person that actually, it, obviously, if I went into politics, it would be with the Labour Party or possibly the Green Party. I don't think I'm really the kind of person that politics needs right now. I think it's really important that we hear from other voices going into politics. And I don't just mean, I mean partly more diverse voices, working class voices, young voices, black voices, but also voices of people who've been experienced maybe some of the sharp end or, you know, other challenges that life has to throw at them. I'm not, I'm not sure that I don't feel that politics needs my contribution in party politics right now. But that sense of um, a campaigning mission mm. flows through your veins. So where's your next campaigning focus going to be? Well, I am involved in green politics. I've been involved in Extinction Rebellion in London for some time. I'm not sure that, uh, you know, that I'd throw myself fully into Extinction Rebellion as a way of of moving forward my activism. But definitely I think there's more to be done in connecting um, feminism and environmentalist politics. How exciting. It's been an extraordinary journey. You've mentioned lots of people who've influenced the uh, paths that you've taken and, and, and the uh, success that you've had. Is there anybody who really stands out or perhaps who's sort of from a distance who you've sort of seen as a, a model or someone to emulate? Writing this book recently about my family has made me realise just how important my parents have been to me and the inspiration that they have given me in terms of the way they've always stayed true to their values. Good advice. Um, the university has been fortunate to have you as a, a visiting professor. You've carried on connections, not least through, through your daughter being in the university. If you were to think of our students today who might be really inspired, I think they will be really inspired by your story. What advice would you give them about getting the most out of their Cambridge experience and particularly that sort of the opportunity it opens up to them? I do think the young generation now are just facing such huge challenges. Many of them we didn't have to face, you know, uh, whether those are around the climate, around politics, around the kind of economic shocks that we're seeing at the moment. So I'd say don't try and prejudge your future. Try and connect with your passions and your values. That's going to be what carries you through. That's going to be what brings you happiness. So enjoy. Find what you love. We say that a lot. You'll be glad to know. You said right at the start you were happy here. And we talk a lot about being happy here now. I, I think young people are perhaps a bit more at risk now than we were of arriving having been sort of set on tram lines. And we need to get them off the tram lines. And they need to breathe and discover themselves and take some risks and make some different connections and feel that they've got this space and the intellectual as well as the personal support to be able to go and explore all those sorts of avenues. I think that's absolutely right. I do worry when I look at, you know, my daughter and her cohort and my son who's 13 and his friend, I do feel that 
seems to be, I don't know quite how it's happened, but a narrowness often in their education. I think we were lucky, many of us in the past, in this sense that we had that you could kind of make mistakes. Yes there would still be a way back for you, whether mistakes in your personal life or your educational life, whatever, you know. And maybe that was partly about the anonymity that we had, the freedom before the online world took over in the way that it had. We weren't looking at ourselves online all the time. And we could do things that were entirely forgotten. You know, I only think I have two photographs of myself at Cambridge when I was an undergraduate here. How extraordinary is that now when you think what a visual record, apart from anything else, exists of your time? So... I think that's absolutely right. If you can possibly, I know it's hard when people have invested so much in terms of not just the time and effort, but of course also the money now to come to Cambridge. But allow yourself a little space, a breathing space, particularly in your first couple of years, to take some risks, to have some fun, to really enjoy what you do. I was so lucky to graduate with a first from this university. But a lot of the time when I was studying, I wasn't studying for that first. I really honestly would say I was studying for the love of it. I loved what I was doing here. That's advice that we, we try and give to potential applicants as well. Come because you love your subject, because you would want to leap out of bed every morning to find out more about it, to pursue your curiosity in all kinds of dimensions of it. That's got to be the thing that brings you here. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, you know, you may not get the grade that you want. Who knows? It's very chancy and your interest may take you in slightly the wrong direction to get that perfect grade. But you'll have found something more important about yourself and, you know, what really makes you tick. And that's going to carry you through for the future. We are really proud to have you as a member of this college. It's so distinguished and the, the way you've developed and used your voice and for so much good in the world. We really are chuffed you're a journey, Natasha. What does the college mean to you today? I still see it as a really happy place, you know, because of, it was such a time of happiness for me. I suppose now looking at Cambridge, I'm more aware of some of the problems that come with having such a privileged environment. But I know that Cambridge is trying to do a lot of work to open up and to make sure that more people feel that this is accessible for them, this is possible. And so I hope that that's true of, of St John's as well, that that sense of sort of happiness and enrichment and privilege can be can be shared more widely. We're recording this podcast just a few days before our freshers arrive. And uh, so in five days' time, I'll be talking to them at the matriculation dinner. And I really go out of my way to say, you now belong. You don't have to do anything else. You belong now. There's no need to prove. There's no model you have to fit. There's, there's nothing apart from we saw in you that great academic potential and we think this is the place that you can pursue it. You just belong. And I think that's so important to, to, to take away actually barriers that are quite often being put up by outside voices, not by voices within this university or this college. It, it's actually about external perceptions and perceptions matter. But the truth is, it's still an incredibly welcoming, belonging, happy sort of place. That's definitely what I found when I was here. And I just, I am so grateful to the people that I met here the other undergraduates, also, you know, the teachers that I had here that had such incredible, they showed such faith, you know, and the time that they spent sharing their love of literature was extraordinary. Well, Natasha, it's been a joy being in conversation with you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It's really wonderful to return here. I love travelling back and thinking about 
a very happy time for me. Thank you for listening to Suvion. Suvion is taken from Souvent me Suvion, the medieval French motto of our founder, Lady Margaret Beaufort, the matriarch of the Tudor dynasty. Souvent me Suvion is usually translated as I often remember or remember me often. That's why when visiting St. John's, you'll see blue forget-me-not flowers in the decorations surrounding the college's arms. Lady Margaret's own story of political brilliance, self-preservation and personal influence is one we remember often. For more on life at St. John's College and the University of Cambridge, visit joh.cam.ac.uk or follow us on social media. Music